This is the My Weight What to Know podcast, where we talk to medical experts about the latest research on weight management and how you can apply it to reaching your best weight. We have a very special episode for you tonight with food addiction counselor and author Sandra Leah about emotional eating, self-acceptance, and her wonderful book, Never Enough. Sandra, thank you so much for being here with us tonight. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. So let's start with your story for the folks watching at home who may not be familiar with it. Tell us about your journey with obesity and food addiction. I'll ask everyone to go back in time about 25 years ago. I'm in my mid-20s and I'm steadily gaining weight. And by the age of 28, 29, I'm 100 pounds overweight. And, you know, Ainsley, I wish I could tell you that it was just my weight and my eating that was a problem, but I identify as a food addict. And with addiction, it often devastates every area of your life. And that was definitely true for me. My marriage was crumbling. I was in a very codependent relationship with my mom. I was trying to save her. She was living with bipolar disorder and obesity herself. Um, my, I was dealing with chronic depression and I was off work on sick leave. So that was my absolute rock bottom. And I was grateful for that time that I took off of work to just sort of take a breath and see what is happening. Up until that point, I was a professional dieter and I was just trying to look for that magic diet and a way to, to be thin. And I couldn't. And it wasn't until I treated my weight and my eating as an addiction that I was able to have some success. And I was able to let go of this idea that I could ever eat perfectly and find a way to be sane with food. Wow. So your book is called Never Enough. Can you tell us about how you've experienced that theme of kind of never enough, both with food and other aspects of your life? Yes. So I think that idea of never enough plagues almost every human, right? I'm, I'm not enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not educated enough. I'm not rich enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not thin enough. I'm, I'm just not enough. And sometimes the world tells us we're not enough. And that feeling of not enough often has us reaching for solace. And whether that solace is in drinking or shopping or relationships, or in my case, in food, when we seek solace in a substance, it can then sometimes turn into an addiction. And then that becomes never enough. There's never going to be enough food to make me feel worthy, or there's never going to be enough shoes, and I do love shoes, to make me feel like I'm enough. So it has that double meaning. So let's talk a little bit about the terms food addiction or food addict. Define what a food addict is for us. Yeah, for sure. And I think the easiest way for people to understand that is if we draw some parallels, parallels with alcoholism. So um, somebody who has alcoholism may watch another person enjoy a glass of wine and think, but why can't I do that? Why can't I just have a glass of wine and move on with my night? But it doesn't. So often for somebody with alcoholism, having that one glass means they're going to have the whole bottle, means they might have two bottles, and they're going to end up in a predicament that they do not want to be in. And so they're not enjoying alcohol, they're using alcohol. And that's the way it is uh, oftentimes for a food addict. It is having cravings and urges that are overwhelming and immediate and we start on certain trigger foods. And that means we're not going to be able to stop. We don't get satiated. We actually, it ignites the hunt for more. 
and more and more. And we've sort of lost what food was meant for, and we're starting to use food to alter our state. So we're looking to food to numb out. We're looking for food to give us comfort, uh, for escapism, things that food was never intended for. And then over time, because our food supply is incredibly toxic, and uh, it, oftentimes foods are chemically engineered to overwhelm our reward center. Some of us are susceptible to become dependent on those foods to get through the day as coping mechanisms. And then the hallmark of food addiction or any addiction is you have consequences from your eating or your weight that you desperately do not want, whether that's diabetes or lack of mobility or extra weight. You don't want those consequences. And yet, you cannot stop. So how does someone know if they're a food addict versus a non-addict who's living with obesity? What we know is obesity is a chronic and progressive illness with many, many contributing factors, many outside of a person's control. And sometimes their best efforts um, means that they're not able to manage their weight on their own, and that's absolutely okay. We, for the first time in history, have a template. We have a treatment plan for obesity, which is incredibly exciting for me because I was my mother's health advocate and there was no treatment for her and she died at the age of 69. She went too soon. And so what we know today is there are three pillars of treatment. There is behavioral change, pharmacotherapy, and bariatric surgery. And for some people, they will need all three pillars and that's okay, and some two or one. But if you're not using one of the pillars, then you're not being treated for obesity. So then how do we distinguish obesity and food addiction? And there's obviously tons of overlay. One of my favorite questions to ask my clients is when they sit down to a meal, what is your intention? What is your intention when you sit down to have dinner? Is your intention, I'm hungry, I need to nourish my body, I'm gonna fuel my body, I'm gonna go on with my evening. Or is your intention, I'm going to sit down, I've had a super stressful day, I'm going to eat to be numb, to forget, to soothe. That's a different kind of eating. And that looks more like food addiction. Sandra, one of the things I loved about the book was your description of how you completely changed your relationship with the scale and weighing yourself. Tell us about that shift and how you encourage other people to think about whether they should break up with the scale. So I, uh, first of all, I want to start with a very bold statement that the scale is the least accurate measure of your success and how hard you are working. And so in my own story, I used to be a compulsive wearer. And I know there's other people like that, like weigh myself in the morning, weigh myself at night. I, I don't know what I thought was going to happen from morning to night, except that it would go up. And the scale, I think everyone has to ask themselves, does this inanimate object have the power to change your day, change how you feel about yourself, change your self-worth, derail your, your efforts? And if it does, then maybe you don't need the scale. Um, what other ways can we measure how we are doing? You know, and I always answer that with what's important to you. Is it important that you have better sleep? Is it better that you more uh, presence in your relationships, better energy, better creativity? Um, I always ask the question, why do you need to know what you weigh? Like I get why your doctor does, your surgeon, maybe your pharmacist, but why do you need to know? If you're living your best life, and eating the best foods you can get your hands on and moving your body, then let your weight be none of your business. My weight is none of my 
business. My business is to enjoy and love the body I have today. Why? Because I'm never getting this day back. It's never coming back. And there's no more waiting to buy the outfit, to put on the bathing suit, to go on the vacation. Because at the end of the day, nobody wants to be on their rocking chair looking back over the years that they had lamented and missed out because they weren't the body size that they wanted. Um, I had spent some time running a program. It was a 28-day inpatient program for food addiction. So people would come into the house. Every morsel they ate was measured and weighed. They always had a buddy. And at the end of the 28 days, we had to weigh them for research purposes. I, I hated it so much. And I can tell you, some people dropped a significant amount of weight and some dropped very little weight. But Everybody did the work and made the changes and were showing up different. And you know, the person who lost a little bit of weight felt like a failure. It was crazy to me, crazy. So um, if anything that I can leave with people is just let go of the scale. If it's toxic, like any other toxic relationship, end it. Well, I love that you're also giving people kind of an alternative to how they're looking at quote unquote success. You know, am I sleeping better? Am I feeling better? Am I more present? And I think those are really the measures that I think many people are using the number on the scale as a proxy for. And you're saying, just go to the thing that matters most to you. Yeah. And that you will see changes quickly. Right. So when you're winning at a game and you see progress, that's going to be intrinsically motivating. But when you have your eye on a prize that is inaccurate often and not a fair uh, representation of how hard you're working, it's, it's so discouraging. And how much energy do we need for this journey? So you say in chapter three that if someone wants to gain weight, they should go on a diet, which is completely different than the way most people think about it. What do we now know about why diets don't work? So the research is in, and I learned this from great mentors. I'm very, very fortunate to work with some of the top obesity doctors here in Canada. And the research is in. All diets work in the short term. All of them. Doesn't matter what it is and how the combinations of this or that, they all work in the short term. And then we have even more overwhelming research to show that about 95% of them all fail. And so in my own theory, it's sort of like the casino effect. Somebody went on this crazy restrictive diet and they lost 20 pounds and they felt amazing. And then it wasn't sustainable, but they never understood that the odds were always against them. So they think, oh, I should have stuck it out. I should have doubled down. If I had still been on that diet, I might've been down 40 pounds. No, you were never gonna win. Just like at the slot machine, you won once, but the odds are always going to be against you. And we hang on to that. And instead of placing the blame on the diet, we place the blame on ourselves. Why couldn't I have stuck to it? Because nobody can. So when we go on a restrictive, super restrictive diet, we activate a cascade of events in our brain that is beyond our control, that is going to make us want to seek food and find food and eat as much food as possible. So the longer you're on that restrictive diet, the hungrier you're going to get, the more the drive to eat food. And somehow we've wrapped that into a moral failing. So just do yourself a favor. Never go on a diet again. Um, the way that you, we all have to have a meal plan. So I'm just... 
I'm a great aunt and I am so fortunate to watch my nieces now prepare meals for the toddlers and they make sure it's the right combination of proteins and fats and carbs and vegetables and fruits. Why? So these children flourish. But guess what? We need a meal plan till the day we die that evolves with our age and our health needs and our activity needs and our cultural preferences that is going to keep us safe and thriving. So forget the diet and figure out what is a meal plan that allows me to flourish. So your personal experience and the things you've learned have led you to become a food addiction counselor and develop your food addiction recovery program. Can you describe kind of the three pillars of the program? For sure. So the three pillars, we always have to start with the foundation. And for many people living with obesity or food addiction, our foundation, our childhood was rocky, maybe wasn't very stable. So we got to make a foundation. And that foundation is self-acceptance and self-love. I, I want to be clear. It is hard to change in a constructive manner when motivated by shame, guilt, or hate. And how many of us have embarked on changing our relationship filled with shame or self-hatred. So we got to let go of those heavy bags if, if we want to start this journey to repair our relationship with food. Love is energizing. Nothing will slow you down more than an internal harsh critic. So once we have that foundation, it sits on three pillars. The first pillar is eliminating our trigger foods. These are foods that we obsess about. Once we start, it's hard to have a reasonable portion and have led to overeating episodes. And I'm not going to tell you what your trigger foods are, right? I don't know. Um, you have enough evidence in history with your trigger foods to know what they are. And inevitably, somebody will say, well, you're labeling foods bad or good. No, I'm not. I'm actually asking what is peaceful for you? What brings you peace? What can you eat comfortably that has a beginning and an end? And the second pillar is to create community. We all need to be tapped into a community of people trying to do exactly what we're trying to do that celebrates our successes and holds us up when we fall down. The third pillar is spirituality and mindfulness. So we know that addictive eating is mindless eating. So we, we learn the skills of mindfulness to be present, to commune with our food. And then spirituality in my program has nothing to do with religion, but rather a remembering. So we all come into this world perfect little beings with the spark of the divine inside of us, with, with a magnificence, a power, and we lose that connection. We lose that connection because sad things happen to us, uh, traumatizing things, people tell us we're not enough. And so we, we, with the spirituality and the mindfulness, we reconnect to that center and we remember our worthiness because eating is not a moral issue. And at the very top of the pillars is to have a peaceful relationship with food, sanity with food. For so many of us, we've had this tumultuous relationship with food. And how do we get back to no longer using food to alter our state, but rather to nourish and honor our bodies? So one part of the program is a very simple three-step cognitive behavioral therapy process you've developed. Let's walk through what that is and how someone might put it into action. My little CBT hack, I like to call it, is for craving management. Because at the end of the day, once you select a meal plan that works for you, you're left with cravings. And they can be overwhelming and urgent and difficult to manage. So the first step is to recognize a craving as a lie. And so the lie could be, you know what? The diet's going to start tomorrow. And if the diet's going to start tomorrow, then I'm going to eat everything today because now I'm going to eat clean for the rest of my life, which nobody can do. 
So just calling it out, right? So it's hard to control the first thought that comes into our heads, but we get to decide with the second and the third. Or the lie could be, I deserve a treat today. And I always tell my clients, you absolutely deserve a treat. You always deserve a treat. But is a trigger food really a treat? Because how does it leave you? Does it leave you better than when you started? Um, And then the, the second piece is to really look at a craving maybe as a brain glitch. So just to have some separation, you know, is it just habit? Is it because at three o'clock I always have something sweet and my brain's like, hey, it's three o'clock. Or maybe I watched a commercial. People need to understand that millions of dollars go into a commercial. So they're going to make sure that they are going to hit your dopamine and get you to get up and order or have that. Um, So just looking at it like it's not a command. It might just be something going on in my brain. And the third thing for a lot of people, for a lot of people, uh, cravings cause anxiety, right? You're kind of standing on the prefaces of will I, won't I, should I, shouldn't I, maybe I can. And so to quell that, um, deep breathing. You know, if you can get in three big, deep belly breaths, oxygenate that brain so it can make a better decision. So those are the three steps. Call it out as a lie. Is it just a brain glitch? And then breathe. I love that. One of the overarching themes in your book and a key to success in your program is to love and accept yourself as you are. You said it earlier, love is energizing. This is super difficult for many of us, but we know it's important. So how would you suggest someone get started approaching themselves with love rather than that shame, guilt, I got to do it better that you you mentioned earlier? Yeah. So I always suggest to people that they put on a new pair of glasses. So these are metaphorical glasses, but these glasses are going to show you everything that is right and beautiful and what your skills are, what your strengths are. They are rose-colored glasses, but in the absolute best way. And I get it. For a lot of people, this is a a, a stretch, right? And I often hear, no, I can't accept myself as I am because then I'm not going to do anything about it. Well, that's actually not true. Nobody hates themselves better. Nobody hates themselves into a better relationship with food or into a better body. And love, true love is unconditional. And that's what we're all searching for. If you think about it, we all want to be in a relationship with someone who sees the best and loves us unconditionally. And so how can you even trust a love that says, well, when you lose 50 pounds, I'll love you. <laughs> like if I had a man say that to me, I'd be like, I don't want your love when I'm 50 pounds later. And so that's what we need to cultivate and to work on and to make those small little steps. And I'm only interested in love when I mess up. Like, if you love me when I look good and act right and talk right, that's cheap love. And I'm not really interested in that. I'm interested in the kind of love when I mess up and I make the same mistake over and over again. And I'm wearing my ripped pajamas and you still love me. That's what I want. And I have to give that to myself. We cannot give what we do not have and we can't accept it from others. So oftentimes our lives are a reflection of how we feel about ourselves. So if you can get to that place with tiny little steps, with the metaphoric glasses, people will show up differently in your life. Situations will show up differently and more will be available to you in that energy space. 
Sandra, you talk a lot in the book about the importance of community. It's one of the pillars, in fact. Why does finding support in community matter so much? For so many of us who have struggled with our weight or eating for years, or maybe like myself, decades, we often feel alone in our struggles. And when you have wanted something so bad for so long and you've tried and failed, tried and failed, tried and failed, you begin to internalize that you're the failure. And with community, you begin to understand that you're one of many and that this is a difficult road. And one of my greatest hopes for my clients is that they begin to feel like they're winning, that they are capable, that it is possible. So I always say, as a community, we all get up in the morning and we try to hit bullseye on our recovery. And when we hit bullseye, it feels amazing. Like there's nothing else to do because you're just going to bask in how great it feels and your energy and your presence and the way that you speak and walk. And then the days when you get up and you miss bullseye, and there will be days like that, those are no longer failures. Those days are richer. Those are the days that you practice self-love and self-compassion. So there's no more losing. There's no chance that you're ever going to lose. You're either hitting bullseye or you're practicing self-compassion and self-love. And what we know is that you can learn in an environment like that. In a harsh, critical environment, when you miss bullseye, you're never going to learn. You're never going to know why you missed bullseye because the punishment, which is one that you dole out to yourself, is so severe. So that's what the community does. And what people don't realize is you have to celebrate every single success, even tiny, tiny, tiny ones. And you need to have that reaffirmed by your community members because we only look at the end goal. Oh, that's such a big success. But do you know how many little successes it took to get the big one? Tons. And it helps to retrain your brain to see the progress, to see the good. So you say in the book that your experiences with food addiction have actually been a blessing in your life. How so? And what keeps you going? Oh, 100%. I, I'm going to be honest with your community. I'm very, I was very, very shallow as a 20-year-old. So if I couldn't just figure it out, how to eat as much food as I wanted to and be skinny, I would have never evolved as a person. And I would have, yeah, like I wouldn't even have hung out with my 20 year old self today. Like she was really quite unpleasant, but I didn't care because I would have been skinny and I would have been fine. And, and so I am so grateful that I never figured out how to be skinny because that meant I had to go on a spiritual journey and I had to figure out self-love and I had to figure out how to have meaning. And I don't believe in senseless suffering. So my childhood wasn't senseless suffering. Living with obesity wasn't senseless suffering. I'm going to find meaning in it. And then I'm going to be of service to other people so they know that they are not alone. And today, I get to work my passion. Like, I love what I do for a living. I tell I have a Wednesday night support group. I'm going to do that till I'm 95 years old. I'm going to hit go on Zoom. No one's going to be there. I'm not even going to care. I'm just going to talk and say my truth. Um, so it has been the greatest, greatest blessing of my life. Last question for you, Sandra. Can you give people who are struggling with their weight right now three tips they can start implementing today? I'm going to start with a question. What is the single most important relationship you will ever have in this lifetime? Is it with your partner, your parents, your children? You know the answer. It's with you. And if you truly believe that, 
how much time, energy, and nurturing do you put into this relationship? We are all physical beings, mental beings, and spiritual beings. And for our physical bodies, you already know. I'm not even going to cover that. You know, eat whole foods, water, sleep, outside. You know that stuff. And what about our minds? How do you take care of your mind? We are a society hyper-focused on what we put in our mouths. I'm suggesting what you put into your mind is just as important. Do you stand guard at the door of your mind? Which thoughts do you dial up the intensity on? Which thoughts can you dial down the intensity? You are at the driver's seat of your mind. You get to decide what you are going to focus on and what you focus on expands. And then we are spiritual beings. Do you take time to listen to that inner wisdom, that beautiful instinct that we are all born with? Do you recognize that? Do you sit in silence and have reverence for the beautiful spirit that you are? Sandra, thank you so much for joining us tonight. This has been such an inspiring conversation as always. Thank you, Ainsley, and thank you for the work that you put out into this world and for the community that you have brought together. We will be back to you with a new episode in a few weeks. Until then, please stay safe and take good care. Good night. This podcast episode was sponsored by Novo Nordisk Canada. It was created independently by My Wait What to Know with no influence from Novo Nordisk.